I'm Sangeeta Pillai and this is the Masala Podcast, a Spotify original where we talk about all those things that we're not supposed to talk about as South Asian women. Sex, sexuality, periods, menopause, mental health, nipple hair, shame and many more taboos. And of course HIV is one of the most stigmatised conditions because it's linked to sex and we don't talk about sex, (laughs) so all those things together. It's time we heard the voices of real South Asian women, not just those we see in Bollywood or in mainstream Western media. It's time we had a real voice, a loud and proud and strong voice. It's an internalised dialogue that we have for ourselves, the emotional internal dialogue about how I see myself now with the label. So you see yourself as a label and not the person. I've invited some incredible women to join me around my virtual kitchen table and for the world to rise. This special episode of Masala Podcast looks at HIV in the South Asian community. I interview two incredible women who work in this space. First, I'm talking to Dr. Rageshri Sridharivan, a consultant in sexual health and HIV at Bath's Health NHS Trust. She has recently co-founded Sahar, the South Asian HIV advisory resource, and is working to reduce the stigma around sexual health in South Asian communities here in the UK. Then I speak with Mina Kakea, who has HIV herself and is now an activist involved in campaigns and also does peer mentoring for others with HIV. Rageshri and Meena introduced me to such different perspectives into the lives of those who have HIV. Both talked about how South Asian culture directly affects how patients deal with the illness. And finally, both Rageshri and Meena, who have such passion and compassion, made me look at HIV in such a different way. Rageshri, can we start with talking about what you do? I'm a doctor, so day to day I see patients who are admitted to the ward or in clinics. And I'm um, a sexual health and HIV doctor, although mainly doing HIV these days. So I look after um, men and women living with HIV and give them treatment and generally look at their care overall. We could talk a little bit about the lack of representation of South Asian women within any HIV campaigns. What's your experience been like? I think there have been no campaigns targeted <laughs> as South there Asian no representation. There is no representation. So I think um, traditionally most of the campaigns and, and the funding, to be honest, has targeted um, white gay men. And I think, you know, there's lots of reasons for that. And many of them died in the 80s and 90s before treatment. And I think over the last few years outcomes in terms of health for them have massively improved but other communities are falling behind so there has been more emphasis on gay men from other communities and very recently South Asian gay men Um, but there's been less funding for women and South Asian women with HIV there are so few of them compared to other ethnicities there's been nothing at all so they're almost like the invisible zero funding it's almost like the invisible minority within the minority and who cares about South Asian women I think it has to be down to us as South Asian women we've got to look after people in our community and I think that includes funding as well to be honest absolutely absolutely I think and I think doing things like this, talking about this on podcasts and the work, the very important work that you do 
which puts a light on South Asian women with HIV within the community yeah. and the very complicated kind of situations that they're in yeah. is probably the first step, I think. I hope so. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about what started you down this road, working within HIV, within South Asian communities and women in particular. Sure. So um, I was born in Bombay, moved to Essex when I was two and come from a very medical family. <laughs> um, so my mum is a GP and actually she wanted to be a gynecologist, but for various issues, which I think are probably to do with her ethnicity, she could never get on the training program. So she, a lot like lots of other women at her age, she became a GP and she specialised in family planning. And in the small town where I lived in, um, she was pretty much the only family planning doctor. So I think I've always been quite interested because, you know, she used to talk about contraception. She used to talk about abortions. She used to carry out abortions. And I was always really inspired by her. She's a very strong woman and she used to encourage me and my sister a lot. But it was also really weird as um, her daughter. So um, with her being the only family planning doctor pretty much in the town um I would have people in my year come up to me and say I saw your mother oh last God, week and I'd be like I know what that means <laughs> and I don't really want to know about their sex lives but they, you know it was kind of a mm, I know your mum really well <laughs> um so I think those things I think being um a doctor I became really aware of kind of about some of the barriers that women face in getting good health care um, I was really interested politically in access to abortion and I think that kind of led me to do sexual health and I've worked in East London now for over 12 years. I live in East London so I feel it's my community and I I think it's really important that women have the knowledge and the access to kind of information that can help them look after their health. I think women have to do it for themselves so that drives me I think and particularly South Asians being South Asian and living in a community with lots of South Asian women, I think it's really important. Now, you sent me a report, I think, as kind of before our conversation, which looked at HIV among South Asians specifically. Now, as we know in the culture, sex is a big taboo. So sexually transmitted diseases are massive. Could you talk a little bit about the kind of findings of the survey or kind of your general kind of stuff that you've seen? Yeah, so we decided to do a little study just looking at the South Asians attending our clinic and some other clinics in East London. And one of the reasons we did that was because South Asians living with HIV are not really heard about much in this country within the HIV community and within the South Asian community. When I went on Google, there was literally one search result yeah. there was a bbc video and that's literally it about yes. hiv among south asians in the uk that's how little and that was a man wasn't it there was a man yes. so there's nothing about women no, there is, really isn't <laughs> um and the last survey that looked at south asians with hiv was 2004 wow. so we just thought you know we see these people every day in clinic we need to collect some information find out who they are and more about them so that was the reason we did it um, and what we found was that the people who were attending were a, a mix of men and women. Um, most of the men were gay or bisexual, or they might not name themselves as such. Um, but we had a considerable amount of women as well. And I think one of the most striking things from our results was that um, compared to other ethnicities living with HIV, South Asian people present with late disease. So instead of testing early before um, the HIV virus has a chance to damage the immune system, they often present when they're sick and much later. So they're not thinking of testing as much. Why do you think that is? I think 
so many strands to it. I think one, we think that HIV doesn't affect us. It affects other communities. So it's, if, for, it's something that happens to other people in other communities. Exactly, exactly. And that's strange really in this country because actually there's a lot of HIV in South Asia, but we don't think it, about it amongst South Asians here. And of course, HIV is one of the most stigmatized conditions because it's linked to sex and it's linked to other things like injecting drug use, for example. And we don't talk about sex. <laughs> so all those things together. We don't talk about sex or we're certainly not going to talk about HIV. Yeah. Some of the sort of stats that came out when I was looking up. So it said something like outside of sub-Saharan Africa, Southeast Asia has the world's largest HIV population, which I didn't know. Yeah. And of which 2.1 million live in India, which I, I had no idea. Yeah. So that's a huge figure, isn't it? It's huge. Um, and again, I, I don't know how much it is talked about in India. There's there's a very famous film called My Brother Nikhil, yes. which is about one of the um, first activists in Goa. Um, but again, that's about a man. <laughs> <laughs> it's always about men. Yeah, it always is. <laughs> pretty much everything's about men in our culture. So yeah. That's not surprising. So with... The study, it said that a lot of South Asians were less likely to self-refer, as in sort of go and get themselves tested, because of issues around stigma, confidentiality, you know, is this what you found as well? Yeah, absolutely. So um, with HIV, it's really important to get um, diagnosed and start treatment before your immune system gets damaged. So really, ideally, we want people to test when they're well, because when they're unwell, it, there's already been, um, you know, damage to the immune system. Mm. So we're seeing South Asians wait until they're ill or in yeah. hospital. Mm. Um, and the benefits of being diagnosed early are huge because life expectancy is the same as the general population. We know that if people are on treatment, they can have children and not have kids with HIV. And also if they're on treatment and they're on effective treatment, they won't pass the HIV on to their partners. So lots of benefits of knowing. But we really seeing South Asians being kind of presenting with HIV much later and that's why I really want to raise awareness about getting people tested while they're well making it a routine thing to do with your health so you get your teeth checked at the dentist I think sexual health is very important um, encouraging people to test for HIV is part of it um, and I think for women I think actually in some ways women do test earlier than men um, because, for example, um, there is routine screening for HIV. So all women who are pregnant will get offered an HIV test at 12 weeks. Um, so many women do take that test. And if they're diagnosed, they know when they're pregnant so they can start treatment. Um, but I think one of the issues around that is, is that when women are diagnosed with HIV, sometimes they can be seen as the one who's brought the HIV into the family, although it may not be them who has done that. And we know there are lots of links between um, domestic abuse and violence against women and women living with HIV. Wow, that's really interesting. How so? So we know that um, women who are in violent relationships, even if it's emotional violence, not necessarily physical or sexual violence, they have less agency to be able to choose when they want to have sex who to have sex with and whether they can use contraception or condoms. So we know that women in relationships are more likely to get HIV than other women. And we know that women living with HIV are more likely to be in violent relationships because of the HIV and because of that shame, and you know, about bringing it into the family. So there's a real link there. Um, and that's something research that I've been doing as well over the last few years to kind of raise that awareness as well. 
because that's a big part of the work that you do, isn't it? Yeah. Could you tell me a little bit about some of the people you've met? So I see men and women. Um, in terms of the men, we do see some heterosexual men, but actually more often we see men who have got their HIV through having sex with other men and they may not identify as being gay or bisexual. So often they're having sex secretly. So they'll be married to a woman and have children, um, but they'd be having sex secretly and often quite high risk sex. So perhaps sex in saunas or in parks. Um, and they tend to have less knowledge about how to get HIV or prevent getting it. So they might be getting HIV, not knowing they have it, and then giving it to their wives. Um, so I see some of those men, and I see their wives as well. Um, and it's it's a such a difficult issue. Um, you really feel for both partners in that in that way, because the men aren't living the lives they want to live. The women are so isolated and alone, because they, they literally can't talk to anybody. Um, and there used to be this comparison that, you know, HIV is so easy to treat now. It's like having diabetes. You take your tablets, you don't get unwell. But actually, you know, you wouldn't go down the pub and tell your friends you've got HIV necessarily. Like the you same would with way diabetes. that you would diabetes. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. So I see these women who are really isolated and some of them haven't spoken to anybody even though they've known they've had HIV for years and years. And sometimes the only people they can speak to are their husbands. Um, those relationships can be quite fraught. I often see women with a lot of anger. Unsurprisingly. Yeah, and they don't know where to put it. And, you know, something I've seen is women um, presenting with um, physical symptoms. And when they're investigated, there's been no cause found. And there, it's often due to some of the psychological symptoms and anxiety and all the emotion they've been holding in for decades. So anger about having HIV, not being able to tell anyone, being in a relationship where they perhaps know their husband is having sex with other men. So it's really, it's really difficult. <laughs> That's incredibly, I mean, that, that what you've just described there sort of encapsulates so many issues within our culture, isn't it? Yeah. So one, it's not okay to be gay or queer. So then you hide and then you have, you know, dangerous sex. Yeah. Without protection. Yeah. And then there's the issue of you have to be married. So you're, you're married and then you have to have children. So therefore you're passing on whatever you've got to the wife. Yeah. And again, the taboo, the wife can't go and tell anybody. Yeah. So she's stuck in that. Yeah. And I'm not surprised with the kind of anxiety and trauma because yeah. living with something like that without being able to share with anybody and having to stay in a relationship like that yeah. must cause, I can't even imagine that the trauma of that. And there's so much shame as well. And, you know, anyone can get HIV. It's There's so much shame and stigma associated with it and the thought that it's a dirty disease. But, you know, you just have to have sex once and you don't, doesn't even have yeah. to be, you know, it can be in your relationship. You just, you don't know. Um, so it's really difficult for these women. And certainly one of the things we know that works really well with HIV is um, what's called peer support. So linking up people with HIV um, to, to, you know, go and have coffee, mentor each other. We know that kind of helps people come to terms with their own self-stigma. But it's very hard to get South Asian women to meet anyone else. Wow. You kind of offer them, would you like to meet someone? Would you like to join this group? You know, I think it would be very beneficial just in terms of being able to talk to someone who may be in a slightly similar situation. And I've never had anyone say yes, because they want to keep it to themselves. Wow. So not even one person said, nope, this is going to be really beneficial, but I'm not really going to do it. Yeah, they just say much. they're not ready. Wow. Yeah. Shame. 
What does shame feel like? Where does it sit in the body? For me, shame starts like a flush on my skin, a warmth on my face, then a heat under my armpits, before turning into a full-blown sensation deep in the pit of my stomach, always deeply uncomfortable. What brings me shame? It used to be so many things. Feeling like I'd never be the dutiful daughter that my mother wanted. Or the happily married woman that my family wanted me to be. Or that doctor, lawyer, engineer. The only professions that had value in my culture. But over the years, I've made peace with who I am. And now shame appears less and less. Now it's usually during times when I can't control my anxiety. When I try really hard and it still escapes me. Taking over my thoughts in a jumbled mess. Hijacking my body into being this heart-hammering, sweating mess. But each time shame takes over, I have to remind myself, There is nothing to feel shameful about. Just because shame is hot-wired into my brain and all our brains doesn't mean that I need to give it space. Shame feels personal and shame feels primal. But I have to remind myself, I am bigger than shame. I am stronger than shame. I remember seeing films about HIV in the 80s and 90s, but they were usually stories of white men. I thought it was really important to hear from a woman, particularly a South Asian woman, what living with HIV was really like. I'm so pleased to have Meena Kakea on Masala podcast, talking about her experiences with HIV, her journey through it, and how... She's now helping other people in the South Asian community with HIV. Yeah, so um, it's really interesting because I was diagnosed in 2003. And if you've ever, have you seen the movie Philadelphia? Yes, I have. Okay, so that came out in the 90s with Tom Hanks, as you know. And you know how ill he became. And it was interesting because that presentation was me. I was, I lost a lot of weight. I had lesions and I didn't realize I had it. So I was very late diagnosed, not knowing I had it and and so I was diagnosed and um, it was a shock to my system. Um, you know, it was quite traumatic because falling that demographic, I thought, of somebody having HIV, an Asian heterosexual woman. And I had a partner at the time. And luckily he didn't have it, which was great. And so I was so unwell that they had to hospitalize me. Um, so I was in hospital about three months to get the treatment and then came out. And uh, it really was a journey it was an emotional roller coaster really I have to say it was a rule it was really challenging in the sense that you know HIV in itself is a taboo subject because it's an STI and to let people you know to tell people about it 
it's not like you have cancer or something, but you can't just shout out about it, you know, and also being an Asian woman. But the great thing was that my family were great about it. And that was lovely. Um, So that was great. And they were very supportive. And I got through my recovery, but I also had to have counselling at the time, because I think the challenge is somebody living with HIV is the whole stigma and the narrative around HIV that you tell yourself. So for the journey became one of a love affair with myself, actually, it was an awakening. It was almost like a catalyst where, oh, because of the status of living with HIV, almost became this love affair about me loving, falling in and out of love of myself with myself because of the beliefs, the values, the stereotypes I held, internal stigma I held about HIV, actually. Um, but it was something I never spoke to anybody about. Because you don't, actually. And it's a very internalized emotional journey that you go through. So, you know, it became this love affair where you because it's an, it's an internal one where it's the fear of being judged, not being valued, not feeling worthy enough or deserving or being fear of being rejected by partners. Do you think a lot mm. of that mm. shame and taboo comes mm. from the culture that you're part of? Do you think? How much I, of that do you think is to do with South Asian culture? I think it's... I think it's universal, actually, around women and HIV, because I've also I'm a, I'm also a peer mentor, and one of the things I realised being a peer mentor and supporting women living with HIV, because I am myself, um, they have those same similar issues about telling somebody the fear of being rejected, fear of not being able to have children or a meaningful relationship or marriage or partnerships, um, telling friends, family, employers in the fear of, fear of being discriminated against. Um, I think the profound issue is around fear and rejection, that, that emotional journey, and how you come over that. Because for me, it was really interesting because you have to be able to get to a point where you just have to have a level of acceptance around it and say it is what it is. But it also is quite empowering because... You know, as you know, Sangi, uh, as women and South Asian women, we get rejected for all kinds of reasons, the way we look, our shape, our size, our color, our height. So life is all about preferences and what we like and what we don't like and the partners we choose and what they like from us. So HIV is just one of those. But it, because it has such a, because it's an STI, sexually transmitted disease, most of the time, obviously people do get it through blood, but that doesn't happen anymore. I think... It's just the, ex- I think it's also the narrative around HIV at the moment. You know, what's the story? Because if you think about, back to the movie of Philadelphia, that's the old story. That's the 80s story, that's isn't it? That's the 80s story where treatment um, wasn't effective enough to for people, so people were dying. Yes, it's a long-term condition, which can be life-threatening potentially, but we're living, I'm now on treatment on one tablet a day. And that really... Um, I have a normal quality of life. It doesn't impact me in any way. I just pop one little pill. And I think about maybe people who have diabetes or have to maybe have to take injections, which is more evasive, or somebody who's got MS. So in the grand scheme of things, so what? It's not a big deal anymore. And the we, the amazing thing is in 2011, and I think Rajesh, we probably spoke about this with you, about the, about, uh, the research was done around um, if you're um, on treatment, you're undetectable and therefore you're um, not able to pass it on to anybody. So you're not untransmittable. It's it's a you equals you campaign. Not a lot of people know about it. 
But that was a game changer for myself, women like myself and other Asian women and, and women and all over and people living with HIV because what that told us was if you're on treatment, you are not able to, you you know, you don't, and you know, that means you're undetectable, the virus isn't in your system and therefore it's sitting dormant and therefore you're not transmitted, you cannot pass it on to another person. Um, and that means... You know, you can have unprotected sex if you want, and that's okay. Um, and actually, even if you don't tell somebody and you still have sex, you know you're not going to trans, trans, um, transfer it to any, you know, give it to anybody else. And that's some of the debates I have had with the women I've peer mentored who say, well, if I'm having a one-night stand, do I have a right to tell them? I said, that's your opinion, because if you know you're not going to pass it on, that's fine. But, you know, you've got to be careful. You might They might give you something in terms of STIs, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So take protection, because unless you know the person yeah. or... But it's your judgment call, I yeah, think. Yeah. So these are some of the debates we have around, I think, women particularly, generally around some of those issues about that fear of rejection um, and sort of overcoming and being able to love yourself, I think, and value and know that you are worthy and the person will love you for you anyway. You know. As South Asian women, we're not taught to love ourselves or value ourselves because we've never been valued by people around us. You're a girl. Remember, you're just a girl. That's one of the earliest things I remember being told as a child. The birth of a boy was celebrated. The birth of a girl wasn't. When boys were born, Laddus and Indian sweets were handed out. When girls were born, sympathy was handed out to the parents. I was taught that my only value was to do with the man who married me. And my life's purpose as a woman was to have children. When we are told that we are worth so little, the journey to self-love is a much harder journey not impossible, just slower. Let's talk about, because I know you're an activist within the HIV space, kind of your yeah. experiences. Quite new at you, it, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> but an activist nonetheless. Mm -hmm. So your experiences of HIV and kind of living with it and the life you've led, led you to the work. Can you tell me a little bit about the work that you do? Yes. So it's really interesting because my background is in mental health. I used to be a social worker in mental health and did a degree in neuroscience. So I was always fascinated by the journey, you know, the mind and mental ill health and mental health. And I used to work in psychiatry. And it's really interesting because being diagnosed really was impacting my mental health. And I've never felt that vulnerable and that scared. And it was, it really enabled me to think about my own health and how the narrative and stories and the beliefs we hold impact the thoughts that we have, the beliefs which are just patterns of thought we keep thinking about anything in life, and particularly around HIV. That, that narrative, I had the old narrative, but also it challenged my own self-worth of worthiness and valuing myself and the emotional journey that that brings with it around feeling unworthy, fear, the fear of, um, you know, I had anxiety and de depression at some point, not for too long, but it, it did take a while because I had to go through a, 
a physical recovery as well as a mental health recovery, a mental health recovery. And I think what it really did was it's the perceptions we hold. It's an internalized dialogue that we have for ourselves, the emotional internal dialogue about how I see myself now with the label. So you see yourself as a label and not the person and it becomes your truth. And it's breaking that truth down to a point where actually, is it true? Because the narrative has changed. I'm still a normal person, but I see myself as whatever that and a negative and a negative experience that people won't touch me because of this. And a lot of women with HIV have that narrative. And that's not even about HIV, actually. It could be because of their past experience of any health issue or being divorced or any kind of stigma. We hold it from our life experiences bring us certain narratives we create our own chapters of life so what's the story you know what's your story about HIV and it's unique to each woman so my my story is mine but I think the universal truths that come out it does challenge your own self-worth or lack of self-worth and value because of the narrative around the stigma it holds because what is stigma anyway Sangir it's a judgment What's your judgment? It's self-judgment, self-inner critic, but also the judgment society and culture makes it a wider in the wider context. And within the South Asian community, I think they're not, I think they're similar to other cultures actually in terms of the taboos around sex, the taboos around STIs actually. Um, and so, you know, there is all of those issues around the cultural context of HIV. But I think it really comes down fundamentally to being a woman and how you experience HIV as a woman and how you negotiate yourself with the inside out, you know. And it is, like most women, you're going to get rejected for all kinds of things and you'll be loved for all kinds of things. So that's why I go back to this idea of having a love affair with yourself because only you can love yourself. And then, and I've had experiences with men where they've rejected me for my status and have totally adored me. And I've had a couple of marriage proposals. I'll say that on the record I have because of my HIV. But I'm just a fussy cow. So, you know, <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> and so you should be. Oh, so with HIV and South Asian communities, yeah. um, within the work that you've done and yeah. your experiences, how does the stigma that you mentioned so how does that show itself and how does kind of the attitudes that we carry to sex and then therefore then STIs yeah. and therefore HIV, yeah. how do you think that sort of shows itself? I think it's really, diff it's really hard to generalize actually because I think within our own communities, we are not homogeneous, you know, we are diverse and we have a lot of liberalism as well as conservatism within our own communities around HIV because I have dated Asian men who are not have an issue with it. And I have had uh, other community men who have had an issue with it, you know, who are white. So it doesn't, so you can't, I'm mindful that perhaps, I think what, where the stigma perhaps lies is around the, you know, our parents' generation who have that fear or lack of fear, because I think it's all doing marriage or not being, that you might get, you know, not because of your status, you may not get married or have the kids. But that's also in the African communities and in white communities as well, where the women I've been mentored have the same issues about that same barriers even and reassuring their parents around those issues so I've realized that's because that's a universal cultural thing about being a woman anyway and I'm mindful that within our own communities yeah we do have some of those barriers but actually I also think within our there are a lot of in within our communities there's a lot of liberalism around HIV there's a generation who's saying so what anyway as well so I think we need to have a balance 
debate about it, that we're not just victimized by it, but also there are within our communities, people are liberal and open as well, actually. But I think maybe those were those uh, messages are not being heard. Um, and my I'm an example of that. Um, it's not perfect, don't get me wrong. Um, but I think there needs to be more talk about it because to make it normal, because we, we have to normalize HIV as any other condition. I think the challenge is, I think globally it's still a stigma. It holds that universal stigma of judgment of being, cause, you know, being dirty or being, you know, are you been sleeping around? You know, those kind of stereotypes that people hold. And that's not never the case. Or, or are you gay? You know, because it's often we're recognizing, you know, it's increasing the heterosexual community now across the world. Not actually, it's not a gay, you know, within the homosexuality in that community anymore. So I think there is a public health awareness around challenging those taboos and stigma, but also giving ourselves permission to say we are all diverse and unique with all our different elements and condition. There are so many people with different mindsets and backgrounds. And if anything, these conditions really enabled me to empower myself and actually love myself more, funny enough, um, and become more fearless, actually. That's wonderful. That's yeah. absolutely wonderful. You've turned something which could be potentially negative into something massively positive, I think, yeah, with because your attitudes and the work that you do. Yeah, because I think it, it takes a lot of awareness and I think mostly, generally, it's really also about um, loving yourself and valuing yourself that actually, once you, un and I think HIV really does that for you because either you hold yourself as a victim and you, sh you stay in that mindset or you end up kind of, you know, saying actually in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't really matter because it doesn't really matter because actually I'm living a very healthy, good life and most women with health, with HIV do. The quality of life is normal like anyone else's. It's just one tablet a day. Um, and, the treat, and, you know, the, the illness isn't that evasive. I mean, it's not like I'm injecting or taking other, you know, a whole range of tablets i think you do have to be informed you need to in, it does empower you because the women that are peer mentored um go through that same journey and then when they manage to empower themselves say well actually if i tell them they don't like me i know um that means then they don't like that all of me the whole of me you know there's a whole of you isn't there? there's whole of you and we're all unique and different and we all have you know things which Oh, just makes us. I'd never see it as a negative because we're all different. We all have hidden abilities and disabilities or, or the way we think about ourselves. So I think it really, for me and the women I've supported, it has enabled them and for myself to become empowered rather than disempowered by it. But that's a journey. So how can we as women in yeah. general, mm. those of us who have HIV, those of us who don't, how yeah. do we build resilience? How do we... How do we become a little bit more? It's, it's a mind practice. It's a mind, it's a mind approach where, first of all, it's having the self-awareness of how you're feeling. So it's understanding the emotion right now of how you're feeling. And part of having, because, you know, we come into, I don't know if you know, but you probably are aware, when we talk about mental health and well-being, the first stage is about self-realize. And what does self-realize really means is having an awareness of your emotional state at that moment in time whether it's negative or positive, it doesn't really matter. It's, but there's no judgment made on that. 
it's recognizing I'm not moving to what I want because I'm in a situation which is uncomfortable, whatever that might be. That's quite empowering because that, then at that point gives you a choice to notice how you feel. And sometimes you might be in building momentum where you can't really move, shift out of that negativity or lack of self-worth or self-esteem or wherever you're at or depression or anxiety or doubt or fear because it kind of gets a hold on you. So you have to give yourself permission. And I call this thing the call the permission slip to just be kind to yourself and give yourself a break. Don't be the inner critic and notice yourself when you're inner criticizing yourself because actually it doesn't serve you anyway. So a lot of my coaching, I look at that with women and men, you know, what's the narrative you're telling that's not serving you and the beliefs you're holding about yourself or somebody else? Because often we say things are done to us, but actually it's how you respond to that or react to that. And sometimes you, you have the right to be angry. You have the right to be upset. Because I think there's this old school in psychology in mental health and well-being that, you know, negative negative feelings are unhealthy. They are actually your strength because what they allow you to do is like a navigational point. It reminds you of where you are right now at that moment. And having an awareness can be quite empowering because then you have that moment of choice to say, okay, I can wallow in it, which is fine for a while. Or you can wallow it for 10 years if you like and become a victim mode which a lot of people, because it serves them. And that's controversial for people to hear that, but that's true. Or you can say, because, you know, our innate being is well-being and love, actually, because we don't like being in a position of uncomfortable and pain, because it is uncomfortable. But it becomes a habit as well for a lot of people, because it serves them, for people around them to do what they need to do, or for them to justify themselves. Something you spoke about earlier yeah. stayed with me about yeah. discrimination yeah. within professional sort of health or social work professionals. Yeah, in the health sector. In the health yeah. sector. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Well, it's really interesting. I think the evidence also shows this from the positive um, voices camp, uh, research that they did. And it's actually, there's something about... Um, you know, the narrative about the 80s story about being infectious and and being able not to, uh, you know, being about being infectious, but you're not, you know. And so there's these narratives that health professionals are not trained on, even though you think they know better. You think they'd be the one that yeah. know best. But they don't. So when I was hospitalized um, many years ago, when I was just unwell, and I had an Indian consultant who came to me and said, how did I get it? And I couldn't believe it. And he had these junior doctors around him. And I said, can you get my consultant down? Because I'm not prepared to answer this question. And when I was when I was newly diagnosed, I went to my GP to let them know my status. And I was, you know, referred through the the um, GP nurse, the, you know, the practice nurse. And the practice nurse asked me the same question. And she was Indian as well. And then I told my GP and she was so lovely and apologised so there is a level of ignorance um, and attitudes around HIV still within the health and social care sector professionals. And I think there is a need to train and remind them of the narrative that most people cannot, um, you know, people cannot pass it on if you're on treatment anyway. I also think, you know, and, you know, while we were doing some of this campaigning work, there was a story recently um, about a dentist where a patient um, 
was going for his routine appointment and the G, the doctors, sorry, the dentist said, oh, you know what? He had an appointment at the end because they had to do a deep clean. And they actually said that. The guy was on treatment and he wasn't infectious. I think the case did go to court. But anyway, it's interesting that we live in the 21st century where some of those narratives are still there. Those, you know, we about... We still carry the 80s narrative. Yeah, and it's really outdated and long overdue and finished if anything if i can give that message that if you're on treatment i'm like everyone else do you know what i mean um it's not gonna have an impact on you if you like me for me you like me if you don't like me i don't really care you know <laughs> so there you are let's talk a little bit more about the work that you do and the projects that you're on yeah so you know it's really interesting because i kind of fell into it indirectly because of my first work around HIV and supporting and working in that area came through my first experience was about five years ago where I saw an advert in my clinic for volunteer peer mentoring for Positively UK and I thought you know what I'll give that a go so I did and got trained up and in the last five years I've, I've actually mentored five women and a some of them done a 360 where they've totally become empowered and one's living abroad one since then have got married when she thought she couldn't get married and have kids she invited me to her wedding unfortunately i couldn't make that's it lovely. so that's amazing isn't it Beautiful that you story. because they had their own internalized stigma and it's sometimes it's about exploring and having a safe space for women to talk and you know initially all the sessions i would start off with they will cry or be really emotional because they're, they're in a profound sense of isolation where they've never actually spoken to anybody about their own journey and their own HIV status. So I find it really rewarding, actually. So that was my first journey into just, and I continue to volunteer now as a peer mentor, and I love that. So I do that outside of, you know, and I love doing that. And I think it's a really valuable um, service, and I think it has to be recognised. And I know it's a national um, project across the UK, but the service is not, um, offered across nationally it's very inconsistent I think London is great because the population is there um, I think there needs to be more funding for peer mentoring for women and men to become peer mentors and offer it to people particularly in rural country areas where there is profound isolation there might be maybe three people in that village who have it maybe you know um, so I think that definitely came up in some of the work I've been doing with um, Positively UK I've also done um I've done a talk for BEVA, which stands for British HIV Association, last year. And that was really talking about um, what would a patient, somebody living with HIV, a patient, what kind of, what would be good clinical practice? So it was like looking at the three areas around the three C's, which was um, clarity, choice. I can't remember the other one now. But anyway, it was, it was and it was really nice because it gave me, it was my first opportunity to speak in the public domain. That was last year. And then I've done some talks with um, BBC Asian Network, which was great. Um, and then just last year in September, I went to an international conference in Amsterdam. And there I spoke about building emotional resilience for people living with HIV. And that was really great because it really gave me the platform to talk about the emotional journey that we all have anyway, but the one unique to HIV. Um, and that, you know, and today, again, the narrative changes to that love affair with yourself because it really is a love affair with yourself and the journey. Um, so 
And that's been great, actually, because it's enabled me to, and I don't know where the journey is going to take me, but I'm enjoying it. Um, takes a bit of courage, definitely. Um, but I like to talk anyway. So it's great. So, no, it's been it's been wonderful. And it's just nice to be connected with people who who are just as important um passionate as I am um to be out there and be who they are it's like coming out you know and it's just about being able to say so what it's me this is me this is me I am who I am and that's it you know and I think um because there's not many Asian people are coming there are not many that are out there there are some gay men are out there but I think I'm probably the only Asian woman who's out there probably now officially Sangia. <laughs> so well done um so i think um definitely i think it's it's all about loving yourself really thank you to meena and dr rageshri for sharing so much with me today and helping me see hiv in a totally different light if you've been affected by anything we've talked about in this episode please head to the show notes where i've listed some information about organizations which can offer help and support i'm sangeeta pillai thank you for listening to the masala podcast a spotify original masala podcast is part of my platform soul sutras what's that all about soul sutras is a network for south asian women a safe space to tell our stories a place to reclaim our bodies to tackle taboos within our culture to be exactly who we want to be get in touch and tell me your stories about your taboos check out my website soulsutras.co.uk or get in touch via email at soulsutras.co.uk i'm on twitter and instagram just look for soulsutras Masala podcast was created by me, Sangeeta Pillai, produced by Hannah Walker Brown, opening music by Sunny Robertson.